Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. episode of Garden DC, we're speaking with Debbie Ward, the founder of Prior Unity Garden. She's a professional organic gardener, a speaker, instructor, coach, and writer. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you, Kathy. Happy to be here. Yay. So Washington Gardener readers and past attendees of our annual seed exchanges will be familiar with Debbie because she's spoken at our seed exchanges and participated in the past few years and been one of our more popular speakers. So I thought we would have her on the podcast to talk about all things seeds, but especially seed saving. It's a good time of year to for it. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so busy with everything else going on in early fall, but taking a few minutes to save those seeds, you'll thank yourself in the future. Definitely. Because there's certainly some benefits for saving your own seed. The most popular of which is that you're not having to go out and buy more seed. Hmm, That's very true. And saving money, top of the list for a lot of us these days. What other benefits do you think there are for seed saving? Well, it's very satisfying. It allows people to see the entire cycle of growing something. So it's, there's a lot of satisfaction in saving your own seed. It also allows you to just have some food security for those who are concerned about it because you've got a store of a garden in a small space by saving and storing your own seeds. Hmm, that's a great point about food security. Um, With this past spring, where a lot of our seed companies, mail order seed companies especially, were putting a pause on ordering because they were just so overwhelmed by all the new gardeners, um, having access to your own supply is a great side benefit. Definitely. And I was thinking of one benefit that I personally like for seed saving is um, the variety that I get to choose and, and I can say that pink zinnia is the one I want to save versus, you know, buying a multi-pack of colorful zinnia seeds. Exactly. And that's, if you find, I say to folks, if you find something that you really love, whether it be a tomato or a zinnia, then that's something to prioritize with regards to your seed saving planning. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll get into the how of seed saving in a little bit, um, since we're still talking about the why and some things that can't be saved and some things that are easier to save. And I know that some things just aren't worth saving, that, you know, our time and effort does have some value <laughs> and is not endless. So we'll get into that in a minute. But first, I wanted to talk about Debbie and how you got into gardening. Sure. Well, I've been gardening since I could crawl, quite literally around my parents' garden. And so uh, about 12 years ago or so, I had a life change, a health change sort of happened simultaneously, needing to do something else. And my friend said, you know what? You should start a gardening business because you help everybody garden. You can grow anything. And so that's how Prior Unity Garden started, how the business started. But I have literally been gardening all of my life. And that's one of the things that I'm able to bring to folks is a lifetime of of hands-on gardening experience and shifting with the times, shifting as things change in gardens and garden trends, as well as um, different climactic situations. We get to help folks be successful. Hmm. 
So would you describe your business as a garden coaching business or how is it set up? Well, it's it's services. What I like to do is to start off and just chat with folks, have a 20 minute chat, find out where they're at, what their goals are, to discover how I might be able to be helpful for them. I do a lot of garden coaching. As you mentioned, I love to speak, get up and speak for various different groups and organizations, but I also do a lot of instruction. In, I was doing in-person instruction more than I have been during this particular time, but I do have some online courses. And what I've been doing a lot of lately is a combination of doing some coaching as well as some instruction, one-on-one as well as in small groups. And I've just developed a membership program for people to get to sort of get a little more of me get some some Q&A time get some exclusive webinars and things like that so I'm just always out there looking to see what's going to help the gardeners be successful Hmm. and I know that you're based in northern Virginia how far out would you go for say a garden consult well, it, if I'm doing something, I haven't been doing in-person consultations recently, and I'll frankly go as far as anybody wants me to. It's just a matter of the farther I go, the price increases because there's added time and added gas or expense. The farthest I've gone at this point, I think, has been Richmond or out to Sperryville, up uh, past Leesburg. I've certainly been over to Annapolis as well, as far as in-person consultations go. But I'm also doing them virtually now. So I could do them for anywhere. I've worked with people in other countries at this point. So it doesn't matter where you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in this COVID time, um, that's really come to the forebear. But definitely with your iPhone and you, uh, your client could walk you around the garden or show you something in a, in a digital image uh, that makes it so much easier to, to help somebody outside our immediate area. Definitely. Uh, it, and it's fun. Hmm. And I know your emphasis is on organic gardening. Is it also um, on edibles and herbs? Mostly, yes. I'm, I am strictly organic, a shameless organic gardener. And I really do love helping people be successful growing some edibles, some medicinals, some culinaries at home. Because that's a passion of mine is to just for people to grow really healthy, yummy, amazing food. But that said, I also have worked with, you know, doing flower gardens, native gardens, and I like to combine all of the above because beauty is food too. And a garden is, I think, much more interesting when you're mixing it up a bit and including some flowers, having borders that have some natives in it that are bringing in the pollinators for your vegetable garden, making a lovely herb garden that's close to your house so that you can enjoy your herbs. So mixing it up is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And diversity is, is so much healthier in the garden. Yes, it is a huge key. Very important. Mm-hmm. So for seed saving, what groups of plants do you recommend saving and what groups do you think, nah, I'll just purchase those? Well, for me personally, honestly, I've done some seed saving and I found for the most part, there's very few things I personally save anymore. And some of that has to do with my time and some of it has to do with the fact that I'm a seed catalog freak and I love to look at seed catalogs. But what I find is that to save seed takes some planning to do it successfully, because there are a lot of different kinds of crops that will cross-pollinate. And so there's isolation differences. And in some cases, the amount of area needed to isolate one variety of a plant from another can be, corn, for example, is fairly, is is one that's quite far, can just be too difficult for a home gardener. And then there's also some like carrots that are going to cross-pollinate with some of the wild members of the same plant family, such as the um, 
like Queen Anne's lace, maybe? Yes, Queen Anne's mm -hmm. lace. That was what I was trying to remember. Yeah. I had the image in my brain. So those could be more difficult. So for a home gardener that wants to start out saving seed, the plants that I would recommend starting with are going to be your beans and peas. And the reason why I recommend those to start with is twofold. One, it's dry saving, which means you don't have to worry about water and timing and, and having something ferment. And I'll talk about that a little bit in a, a little later with regards to everyone's favorite food to grow tomatoes. But with beans and peas, they're just super simple. They don't cross-pollinate very much. In fact, peas don't cross-pollinate. Your bush beans cross-pollinate a little bit differently than your pole beans do. The pole beans are a little less likely to cross than your bush beans, but I haven't really found that even my bush beans will cross-pollinate. And what I mean by that is, when you're saving seed, the most important thing to start with is to know that you need to start with a seed variety that's called open pollinated. And what open pollinated seed means is that it will pollinate in the open, quite literally. It's not a hybrid seed. I'm not talking about genetically modified seeds, I'm talking about just a basic hybrid that was a new variety created, as I say, the old fashioned way with people acting like bees. An open pollinated variety is going to do something called grow true from seed. And what that really means is if you save seeds from that plant and you replant those seeds, you're gonna get the same darn variety. So if you find a variety of bean that you really love, then you simply want to keep some of those on the plant, let them dry on the plant before they completely fall out of the, the casing. You want to harvest some of those up, save them for a couple of weeks in, your, in a dry, cool, dark place, and then you just easily pop those seeds out of the shells and let them dry for another week or so. Save them in a sealed container, preferably dry and cool, so that you're not going to get any moisture or molds that could infect your seeds before you plant them the next year. And that's it for the beans and peas. Super, super simple. So those are the ones I still tend to save. And those are the ones that I recommend folks, if you want to get into seed saving, they're just the easiest place to start. And if you don't, if you save a bunch of seed and you realize that you don't necessarily need all of that seed in your garden next year, you've got dry beans that you can make soup out of. Yeah, and they're pretty. <laughs> so you, I was going to say, if you have a jar of saved beans or peas um, on a shelf, you know, it's nice to look at, nice to say, oh, I collected those. Those are mine. Um, and I wanted to put in a note there also for labeling immediately because <laughs> you will forget. Yeah. No matter how much you say you're going to remember because it looks different, than maybe some other bean, especially if you've got more than one variety. Labeling is critical in everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I absolutely yeah, so, agree. So when you're taking, say, the drying casings, uh, the little pea pods that have dried on the plants, do you put them on a piece of paper with a label at that point, or how do you differentiate and label? Generally, what I will do is I'll get out a bunch of cookie trays. And I will take each variety, spread them out loosely on a cookie tray, and write what variety it is and tape it to the bottom of the cookie tray. And then, you know, I'll set them out in, I've got a seed starting rack that I'll use, and I'll just lay those trays out on the seed starting rack. And then when, when I'm ready to shell them, I can just take the tray, okay, this is what it is. I get out the bag I'm going to put the seeds in. I immediately label the bag, and I just shell them right into the bag that I've just labeled from that uh, piece of tape that I have on my cookie sheet. 
that's yeah that's a great process not to have them uh, mixed up at that point and it doesn't sound like you have toddlers at your home <laughs> or I do small not. children or and I was thinking you do have a cat I saw but uh, my cats would love to make a wreck of my of my tray seeds um, is there some way you prevent them from doing that uh, well, in that case, what I would do is recommend put it, laying them out if there's a spare bedroom, like a spare guest bedroom or um, a laundry room in a basement or some place where the, the, our fur, fur family or our human family are not going to go into, that that would be a good way to isolate them and just sort of let them dry. Another possibility might be to put them up high somewhere. Depending mm -hmm. on, you know, if you've got small children, they're probably not going to climb. If you have a cat, minus 21, she's not climbing anymore. But if you do have a climber, she used to be, then I would probably just isolate them in a separate room or a separate space. Yeah, that's a great tip to just have a dedicated separate, you know, it could be a closet or your pantry or just anywhere that um, is not going to be accessible for that drying period. Yes. And so you talked about open pollinated. So let's uh, define and talk about hybrids a little bit. Sure. So a hybrid seed, um, one other note I'll make about open pollinated, when you're looking at seed catalogs, some of the seed catalogs will designate open pollinated by the initials OP. And you'll see that some companies just, that's all they carry are open pollinated seed. The hybrids are often designated in catalogs by the letter F and then the number one, which stands for first generation. So what they're saying to you is this is a hybrid seed and it's the first generation of this seed. So in this process, as I said, there are loads of breeders around the world who are creating new varieties. It happens naturally in nature where you'll have, we'll say, a couple of different varieties of peppers that are within proximity of some pollinators, some bees, for example. And those bees will rapidly go between the two different varieties, pollinating away, getting the pollen that they want, and then seed saved from either of those could be a different variety. That's cross-pollination. That's how nature creates a new variety. So with hybrid varieties, you've got humans basically doing the same thing. We're mimicking what bees are doing or what pollinators are doing, but we're doing it in a methodical fashion. And there are all kinds of hybrids out there as far as some of them will be certified organic. Some of them will be certified something called biodynamic. Some of them will not be. Either one does not necessarily mean it wouldn't be something good to use as an organic gardener. The thing about the hybrid seeds, the pluses to me are the, of hybrids, especially more the more modern hybrids, is that they will often be bred for some sort of a disease resistance or a pest resistance of some sort. So if there's a, like for, I've had a lot of problems in the last few years with cucumber beetles on my cucumbers. So I've started buying hybrid cucumbers that are more resistant. So that's one example where I would prefer a hybrid over an open pollinated. In that case, I'm not saving my cucumber seeds, but I'm also not growing oodles of cucumbers. As a home gardener, I may be growing four or five cucumber plants at the most if I want to do pickling. So that seed packet, even though the hybrids may be a little more expensive, that seed packet's still going to last me for a good three seasons, if not more. So I don't mind buying hybrids in certain cases. And that's something that's called hybrid vigor. You'll hear that uh, often referred to in that way. Yes. And you know, when you're saying you're resaving your seeds from year to year, the ones that you didn't use in a certain packet, um, and you're storing those, of course, in a cool, dry place so that they are viable from year to year. So uh, maybe we should dive into viability. 
um, sure. and how we can test for that. Well, what I do is, honestly, I just look at a chart that I have as well as my experience. There are certain certain types of seeds that are going to be done after a year. Generally, those are going to be examples are going to be the onion family, the Asteraceae family, where so your leeks, your onions, those guys, wrong plant family. <laughs> Those guys are not going, the alluum family, I take that back, are not going to be viable more than a year. Then you've got on the other end, you've got some of the brassicas, for example, that can be viable for five years. I've had kale seed that I've been, that I've saved. I had a whole bunch of kale um, several years ago and I saved just a gobsmacking amount of kale seed and you kept using it year after year. It was like two years, three years, four years, five years, six years. I kept using that seed and it was still viable seed. So, and then there's somewhere in between. And just because, for instance, a lot of times I'll have people say, oh, pepper seeds don't last more than four years max. But I used to always keep, and this is if you have the space for it, I would always keep my seeds in plastic in a, uh, a card file. I kept them in card files in the refrigerator. So they were sealed, kind of double sealed in the refrigerator. And doing that, I had pepper seeds last for over 10 years. Same with some tomato seeds. So seed storage can alter how long a seed is going to be viable. And in some cases, certainly in my experience, uh, some of the brassica families, the, the cabbages, the kales, the broccolis, as well as those tomatoes and peppers, I found to be viable way longer than most people recommend. So seed storage, when you're saving your seed, if you're taking that much time to be going through the process, then it would be uh, a great idea to make sure that your seed is stored well. Mm -hmm. and, and isn't it ironic how much more viable for so much longer weed seeds are <laughs> than, the, <laughs> than the desirable seeds? Because they say that the seed bank in our soils, when you turn over your soil whenever you're planting, mm -hmm. um, could last for at least 10 to 20 years, most of our common weeds. Yes, this is why I oftentimes have stopped doing a lot of turning seed and turning soil in the garden to not be pulling up some of those weed seeds to the surface. Yeah, as little disturbance as you can possibly do to the soil um, is is a great way to keep down on some of that weed control and keep tamp down on that population. Definitely. Um, yeah. Definitely. Um, but well, yeah. Weeds, uh, weeds will conquer all. <laughs> it's very true. To. It's very mm -hmm. true. I also wanted to give people some tips because tomatoes are the most popular vegetable that is grown in the United States. I wanted to give people some tips as far as seed saving their tomatoes. If they come across a, a lovely heirloom variety that they just absolutely have to keep and don't want to keep buying the seeds. Tomatoes are a little bit more difficult, and this is what's called wet seed saving. When I was talking about the beans, there are there's they're part of the types of seed that are dry seed saving. Other examples of dry seed besides peas and beans would be lettuce, the brassicas, the broccolis, uh, spinaches, chard. Those are seeds that you don't, that you can just save in their dry stage. So then you've got all other varieties that are, as I said, called wet seed saving. So for tomatoes specifically, what the recommended isolation difference between varieties, everybody hold your breath, is 35 feet for an heirloom. Now, most of us do not have 35 feet in a small home garden. 
So if you have an heirloom that you absolutely love and you must save the seed from that, let that be the variety that you grow the year that you decide to save seed. If you want to make absolutely sure you're going to get that variety again. So what you want to do is you want to harvest those tomatoes when they're fully ripe and then you mash them into a container you know, just like a, a, a canning jar, something glass is what I like to use. Put a, a lid on it that's, that's loose. You don't want to seal it in. And you're going to let that container sit at room temperature and it's going to start to bubble up. It's called fermenting. Some people may see this term of fermenting seeds. And this is what they're talking about. This is the process. So you let those seeds and that tomato mush sit at room temperature and bubble up until those bubbles stop forming, which is usually in about 36 hours. While that process is going, you're going to want to stir it a couple of times a day, like you know, every 12 hours or so. You get up in the morning, you stir them a bit. Before you go to bed, you stir them a bit. Then once the bubbles have stopped forming, you want to get that pulp, get rid of those large chunks, very easily rinse the seeds, getting all the pulp off of those seeds. Then you want to spread them out on a very thin layer and allow them to dry fully for about three weeks. And the way I do that is I'll spread them out on a paper towel and I'll put them on a drying rack out of the sun and just sort of out of the way like I was saying with the cookie sheets for about three weeks and make sure that they're completely dry. Now when I do that sometimes some of them will end up sticking to the paper towel. If you find that they're sticking to the paper towel in that case if you can't pick them off to put them in a, a plastic bag separate then I'll just roll up the paper towel, stick it in a bag. And when I'm going to plant, I'll just rip out the individual seeds with the paper towel attached, stick them in the soil, no big deal. So that's the detail process for tomatoes, um, which reminds me of something else that I want to mention that I find has been one of the hardest things I've seen people do when it comes to seed saving. And that is that you want to use to save seed from your biggest and best fruits and plants. And that can be a little bit of a challenge when you see like the most perfect tomato, the most perfect <laughs> cucumber. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's the one that you want to save seed from because you want to grow more like that. So keeping that in mind. And in some cases, for example, the members of the cucubit family, when I'm saving seeds of cucumbers, for example, I want those cucumbers to get yellow and gnarly. You want to, you want the fruits to get as old and as big as possible before you save the seed because you want the energy to go into growing nice, big, plump, viable seeds. Just like another example is um, zucchinis or summer squash. You want to save those until they've got a hard shell on them like a winter squash and let those things cure for a while before you're going to be scooping out and saving those seeds. Likewise with the pumpkins, you want those guys to cure for a good three weeks after you've harvested it before you're going to be scooping out and saving those seeds. Hmm. So you're basically letting them almost rot on the vine or are you picking them and curing them before that point? Well, it's, that's an observation. If the cucumbers have gone yellow on the vine, okay, I'll pick that and I'll save it. If something has rotted in the garden, that's where you need to watch to see if there's been any invasion of critters into it, if there's molds. You don't want to have molds in your seed stock. So I prefer to let it ripen as long as I possibly can on the vine without rotting 
or getting really yucky and gross, then harvesting it and bringing it in where I can observe it and see, oh, this is like this cucumber is yellow and it's ready, or this one's, you know, starting to turn yellow. I'm going to let it sit on my counter and watch it for a few days. And right before it gets, you know, starts to get funky, then I know I can grab those seeds. And great point to, to keep an eye on it for that process. Um, yes. I've, I've had the experience before of an exploding watermelon on my countertop. <laughs> so, oh, my. <laughs> that's quite the mess to clean up coming home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watermelon juice everywhere because I was saving that one sugar baby for seed saving as an experiment. But, yeah, a, a little bit one day past where it was supposed to go. Um, that does bring up a question I get from a lot of uh, readers of Washington Gardener magazine and at our seed exchanges every year, um, which is when I go to the grocery store and buy this, say, green pepper or this wonderful watermelon, uh, can I save seeds from that? That's a great question. I get that question quite a bit myself. And here's the answer that I give to people. Sure, you can. But you might not know what exactly you're going to get. So if you're wanting to do that, the first thing I recommend is to do it from a uh, some produce that you've bought that's organic. There's a higher possibility that it might be an open pollinated if you're buying organic versus non-organic. Another thing is to potentially be buying from farmer's markets where those growers and those farmers oftentimes will tend to use more open pollinated seed than larger commercial stores will where the produce is being shipped across the country. So I will say if somebody really likes it, certainly you can save it. But it goes back to what I said earlier. In this case, you don't know what it is. So you can save the seeds. And you can plant those seeds, and that can be a really cool experiment. You may or may not get what it is that you had before. You may get something that's really awful. You may get something exactly the same. You may get something that's even better. So it's a mystery. So if you're into mystery, and if you like doing experiments, then I say, sure, try it. But you definitely want to try it with something that's organic and so that it's not going to be irradiated because the irradiated process that happens with some inorganic produce that is sold commercially is that you're killing the seed viability of the plant. So that's another reason if you're going to do it to be trying organic. Now, there's a few things that are easier to do that with. For instance, garlic is a pretty easy one. If you get an organic head of garlic, it's pretty easy to break up those cloves and replant them. A little less dicey than your peppers, for example. Yeah, that's a great tip uh, for garlic. And you had said earlier to save your best and your most wonderful from each harvest to be your seed stock for next year. And that is what I do every year with my garlic is the biggest head, the the one you want to eat right away after you after you cured it. But that's the one you really want to save for, for next year's planting or next season's planting. Yes. And so we talked about the dry method and the wet method um, for vegetables. But let's talk quickly about um, annuals and perennial flowers. So in general, that's going to be also, of course, the dry method. Yes, definitely. And it's, it's very similar. For example, I've saved a lot of zinnia and marigold seeds because they're annuals and they're very simple. So that's another good, those are two good flowers for folks to start with if you are a flower gardener. And for most flowers, what you're doing is you're allowing, you're not deadheading the flower. At a certain point in time, you're allowing those flowers that are on the plant to start to dry on the plant. At some point, what I'll do, the longer they can, and this goes for any seeds, the flowers as, as well as anything, the longer it can stay on the plant itself and dry and make seed, the better. 
because plants are made that way. They're made to reproduce. That's their whole life. And especially with the annual flowers, that's why they're so showy and so gorgeous and so fun because they know they've got one year to do it, folks, and they've got to go to seed. So if you're um, at some point, I will stop deadheading if I want to be saving and deadheading is just clipping what I call it is it's basically cutting your flowers and bringing them in to look at them in your vase. But it's making sure that the plant continues to flower because once you leave the flowers on the plant, then the plant gets the signal. Oh, OK, I'm starting to reproduce now. That's why I exist. And so it will stop putting up flowers and will start the process of putting all of its energy into nice viable seed for the next year because that's its goal in life. So at some point I stopped deadheading. I'm actually looking out my office window right now at a beautiful zinnia plant that I've done exactly this with. And I've stopped harvesting the zinnias and I'm letting them start to dry on the plant. Now, the thing you want to watch for is that you don't want it to dry so far that the seeds start to fall off the plant. Unless, of course, you want them to reseed, and then it's a good thing. But if you're saving them, like I want to do with these zinnias, is I'll watch till the plant is dry and almost completely dry, preferably all the way dry, and harvest it. And then I will bring those branches in. Tie them, I'll put them in a paper bag in a dry, dark place, let them continue to dry before I take them off of the plant. And that's pretty much how I do every flower, whether it be an annual or a perennial. Mm -hmm. And I think um, similarly for herb seed saving, so a lot of our, the herbs we grow, we want um, the fleshy leaves to use in our cooking, and we don't want them to go to flower and create seed. And then there's other herbs where the seeds are the edible part. Can you talk about a few of those? Sure. And there's some that are both. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll use cilantro as an example. So we love cilantro for, our, for the leaves. We also love the seeds for coriander. So I decided to start with this one as an example because it's also one that I like as a companion plant in my vegetable garden because it is a host for adult parasitic wasps that the larva of which can be very beneficial for keeping other critters down in your garden. So I like to put in my cilantro. I like to seed it actually in the fall. It's another reason why I picked this one because you could go out and you could seed it now. It's actually likes cool weather. I tend to overwinter it. I'll often put it in a hoop house to do that. Although I've had it overwinter without protection before here in Northern Virginia. Plant my cilantro. You enjoy the leaves. I leave some of it to go to flower in the spring which allows it to attract and keep those wonderful beneficial insects. And then it starts to go to seed and I get cilantro, I get coriander seed. So there's an example of a super useful plant where you have both. With basils, I tend to continue to harvest the leaves until a certain point, sort of like with the example of the zinnias and then I'll let the basil go to flower and let it go to seed and again I'll do the method and I do this with a lot of herbs is cut off the seed heads and then put them in the paper bag and let them dry but that also brings up another note when you're putting those seeds and those stalks in a paper bag label your bag especially if you've got more than one variety of basil, for example, or more than one variety of kale. I have gone, hmm, I wonder which it was. <laughs> yeah, that's a great tip to, to label those bags right away as soon as you bag them up. And um, 
the other herbs that are similar to cilantro, uh, where we like the leaves, but we also eat the seeds, um, are, would be something like dill or fennel. Um, and I was going to ask how we can set some seed aside of not for use in cooking. So just to make sure that uh, you don't use it all up in your cooking, that you actually save some for growing. Well, my method for that's pretty simple. And it's it's interesting you said that because I have a bowl of fennel seed that I just took off, um, took out of the bags um, and took off the, the seed heads that's sitting in there that I need to split. When I'm going to be using seeds of any kind, whether it be the herbs or the beans where we started earlier, is I will take the bowl that I've just done and I think, okay, how many do I realistically need to plant next year? And I scoop those out and I put them in my plastic bag. I label that bag and I put it with my seed storage. The rest of them I put in a jar and I label and I put them in my spice cabinet. Mm-hmm. Simple. And I'm going to do Oh, yeah, that is simple. And I was going to do a little plug here for our seed exchanges again and, and the annual seed swap day, um, which is you can find more information at seedswapday.com to, you know, set one more scoop aside, one more bag that's labeled um, to bring to your local seed exchanges or seed swaps. Oh, and that's a really good idea. And if you find, like last year, I have to agree, your seed swaps are just a blast. Everyone who's listening, go to the seed swaps. They're fantastic. <laughs> last year, I had an abundance of Christmas lima beans. I had pounds of them. So I was able to bag up several different packages to bring to the seed exchange, have plenty that I was able to gift my friends, and plenty to eat all winter long. Hmm. And I was going to say that your tip about putting the flower heads or the herb heads inside a paper bag is another benefit of that is how tiny a lot of those seeds are, especially for some of our annuals like uh, Cosmos and Celosia, mm-hmm. where they're just basically the size of a tiny pinhead, the, the little black seed. And then we have edibles besides herbs that have tiny, tiny seeds like lettuce. Uh, so when you're letting your lettuce go to bolt and flower and form a seed heads, uh, you, that's definitely not something that you will be collecting outside, outdoors in the garden. <laughs> you will uh, quickly see that disappear into the wind because it's such a light tiny little seed. Yes. And that's why I like to watch when they're in the garden and I'll do it with the brassicas too, is, um, cut off the stalk where the seeds are and I'll have the bag right there. And sometimes what I'll try to do is sort of bend the stalk with the seeds on it into the bag as I clip it off and it falls into the bag so that I'm not losing all of those seeds. And another advantage of doing that comes to the fa- another phase in certain, ver- certain types of seeds, certainly the lettuces are a good example, as well as the zinnias and some of the other flowers. You've got those, or, or your herbs, you've got those seed heads now in your paper bag. They've sat for a couple of weeks. You have checked them. Yes, they're really good and dry. You want to make sure they're super dry so that you're not going to get mold or when you're say when they're in their plastic for the winter you still need to get those off of the plant in a lot of cases and basil's a good example of this sweet william flowers are a good example of this the seeds will sort of somewhat fall out and somewhat not fall out of the seed heads So that's where something called threshing comes in, where you need to um, thresh, literally, the seed heads to get the seeds out of them. Now, an advantage of those paper bags is threshing becomes super easy. And in that case, I'll just put a rubber band if if there's stalks sticking out of the top of the bag. I'll put a a rubber band around the bag and the top of the stalks. If there aren't stalks sticking out, I'll just crumple up the bag and hold on to the end so nothing comes out of it. And then I very gently beat it against something, literally. 
the side of the wall, the kitchen cabinet, onto the floor, and just sort of gently beat what's in the bag, thresh it, so that all those seeds come out inside the bag. And that makes it much easier. Then you can, you know, carefully take out the stalks, sort of crumple them in your hands, the seed heads in your hands a little bit if as they're coming out of the bag, in case there's a few seeds that haven't come out yet. Set those aside. Then all that's left in the bag are going to be your seed and potentially something called the cha the chaff, which might be the outer casing of the the seed head that the seed came out of then i could just pour that in a bowl and if there's a lot of fluff of the chaff sometimes i'll just blow on it i do that with basil seeds i'll just lay them out i'll dump them out on a table and i'll just very gently blow on them and all of that fluff will just be out of the way i can scoop them right up and put them in my bag mm -hmm. Yeah, I just love the way Mother Nature knows, and she's designed it so that when a seed casing opens up in the wild, that the seed is heavier than the breeze and drops straight to the ground, and then the the chaff, as as you say, or the fluff, just floats away. So yes, I yes. know. Commercially, they'll um, some seed houses will use fans. Mm -hmm. They literally, literally, literally set up a fan to blow some of that off to mimic the natural wind process. Mm -hmm. And I've even seen um, workers at like an heirloom seed company use hand fans and just come up with their hand fans and blow across um, some of the seeds that have been sorted and dried on, on a floor or a pallet. So that's Makes always sense. fun. Yeah, cool. Very cool. So uh, earlier you had mentioned that you are a seed catalog nut and yeah. <laughs> love to sit and read seed catalogs. Could you recommend a, a few of your favorites? Sure, I would love to. I always love giving plugs to my favorite seed companies. So people often ask me, because I'm a seed nut and I do a lot of um, teaching people about seed starting and um, have various systems for that, what I do is... I buy from about 15 or so different seed companies. But I'll start off with what I call the generalists. There are some seed companies where I will go to that seed company and generally buy anything that they have. And then there are other companies that I call my specialists because I have found that this one particular kind of thing grows great from that company. And I'll give you some examples of both. So I don't have one favorite seed company. I can't answer that question for people. What I can do is I can give you some of my favorites. So I'll start off with Territorial Seed Company, which is in Oregon. And they have a fantastic variety of seed for the home gardener or commercial gardener for that matter. They've just got a fantastic variety of both open pollinated as well as hybrid seed. And one of the things I'll also say to folks is because this is one of my passions and one of the things that I like to pass on to people, I've come up with 16 criteria to vet seed companies. So I'm pretty darn picky. And I do that because I've, a lot of I found over the years that people have come to me and said, I don't know what a good seed company is. And it's great for me to tell you, and I'll give you a couple of more, a few more in a minute. But I also like people to know that there are differences in seed companies. And so as an organic gardener, I choose Territorial, for example, because for two reasons, one of their variety and I've had very good seed germination rates with them. The other that I like is they're the one seed catalog as a food gardener that has a fall and winter catalog as well as a spring and summer one. And because I love to grow in fall and winter actually the best, that's really a fantastic resource for people who want to be growing year round. Another favorite generalist of mine is high mowing seeds, 
when someone comes to me and says, I don't want to think about it. I just want everything organic. I say, go to high mowing because they are 100% organic. There are other companies that are as well. I've just got a long relationship with them and they are an outstanding company and are always looking to partner with new organic and biodynamic hybridizers to bring you amazing new hybrids. So I say, if you've got an issue with something, you need a hybrid, high mowing's my go-to for that as well. Here in the Midwest region, or the Midwest, the Mideast region, where we are in the Washington DC metropolitan area, Virginia, we've got an awesome local seed company, Seed Savers Exchange. And they're another of my favorite of the generalists, especially not only for the folks that live in the southern part of the country, because they have the largest variety of things like okra and peanuts that you're probably going to find. But they're also a fantastic seed company with some incredible variety of seeds. Some oh, of Debbie, do you mean um, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange? Is that not what I said? Oh, you said Seed Savers Exchange, which okay. is also a fabulous company, too. Okay. So everything yeah. I just said, folks, is about Southern Exposure Seed Exchange yes. in Mineral, Virginia. I will talk about, because the next one I was going to mention was Seed Savers Exchange. And I love them because they have the largest privately held seed bank in the United States. They're 100% open pollinated. And so buying from them, you're just supporting incredibly important work as far as seed diversity and seed sovereignty goes. So they're out of the Midwest, another wonderful generalist company. So the last generalist company I think I'll throw out there is out of Asheville, North Carolina, a company called So True Seed. And they're completely open pollinated. And one of the things I love about them is that they get, if they're not growing their seeds themselves, the majority of their seed are from small family regional farms. And I love supporting small family farms. So that's one of, it's all, their seeds are all open pollinated. And so when you're buying from So True Seed, you know that you're supporting small family farmers across the middle of the country. And that makes my heart happy. Hmm. And, and So True, is it S-O-W? It is S-O-W True Seed, which is kind of fun. Good to know. Yeah. And then I'm going to throw in just one or I'm going to throw in two specialists. Wood Prairie Family Farm in Maine is where I love to get organic seed potatoes. And for all kinds of cool weather greens that are funky and not necessarily what you're going to find in other seed catalogs is a company called Adaptive Seeds. They specialize in varieties that will grow well in the Pacific Northwest. So if you're listening from the Pacific Northwest by chance, they're a fantastic company to go to. But what I found is in this mid-Atlantic region, their greens that you grow in the cool seasons just rocket here. They're fantastic. And there's some really cool things that you're not going to find elsewhere. So I want to give them a good plug too. Wonderful. I have to try out something from Adaptive Seeds myself this winter or next spring. Um, so thank you so much, Debbie. Uh, how can our listeners get in contact with you? Well, you can go to my website, which is priorunitygarden.com. And that's garden with no S because it's only one garden spread all over the earth. You can also email me at Debbie, D-E-B-B-Y, at priorunitygarden.com. Right. Great. And we'll put a link to the website in our show notes and um, also to our seedswapday.com website so everybody can learn about local seed swaps and exchanges that happen around the last week of January and beginning of February. Of course, in these times of COVID, um, some of those may not be happening this winter, may, or they may uh, with social distancing and some restrictions. Um, but 
uh, do stay tuned on the seedswapday.com for any updates on those. And thank you again, Debbie, any final thoughts on seed saving? Well, I don't, you know, I, it's a fun thing to try. I think any gardener should try it at least one time. And if anybody has any questions, what I like to say is to overcome your blocks to growing healthy, yumming, yummy food at home, just simply seek professional organic gardening advice and get some training. And that's why I'm here is to help folks out. So if anybody has any questions, please feel free to ping me. I'm happy to chat gardens. Wonderful. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks, Kathy. Great to be here. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Plant profile, figs, ficus carica. Figs are easy to grow and are a great choice as both an edible and ornamental plant in your garden. Figs need full sun and can grow in zones 6 to 11, though in zones 6 and 7, they will need some extra winter protection, and you will want to select the more winter-hardy varieties like Celeste, Chicago Hardy, and Brown Turkey. Even with added winter protection, if we have a very cold winter, they can die back to the ground, but will usually regenerate from the roots. They are ideal for small space gardens as they can grow in containers or be planted and pruned as shrubs instead of trees. Fig varieties sold in the U.S. are all self-pollinating, so you only need one plant to produce fruit. Keep them well watered, especially if they are growing in containers. Figs hate root competition, so make sure there are no weeds or other plantings in their root zone. You can mulch lightly in that area to retain the soil moisture. You can prune fig trees in late winter before the new spring growth begins. Be sure to remove any dead, diseased, or damaged branches, then thin them back to control their size and snip off any ground suckers. Fig trees are easy to propagate from cuttings, so you can share those healthy pruned twigs that have at least two buds on them. You may find yourself competing with the birds for the delicious figs. Place bags or netting over the fruit to prevent wildlife from getting them before you do, and harvest figs when they begin to soften. Figs, you can grow that. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. What's blooming in my garden this week is the Mum Sheffield Pink. It's also known as single apricot and hillside pink Sheffield, or just Sheffield. The most accurate name probably is that single apricot because to my eyes, it's a very peachy daisy looking mum with no pink at all, really. It stands about two feet tall, can get a little leggy and flop over, but it's great for cutting and using in arrangements. Uh, it's also a great companion plant to several other fall bloomers like the tall sedums and salvias. 
I love it in my garden just because it reminds me of the gardener who passed it along to me at a plant swap years and years ago. Sheffield Pink definitely is one of those plants you should have as a backbone in your garden. It's a hardy mum, an oldie, but a goodie. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.